to episode 426 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Michael O'Malley. Nadine Smith. And in today's episode, we're going to continue our Horror for Kids series with 2018's The House with a Clock in Its Walls. Um, and then in part one, we're going to do movies that we saw this week, which also kind of lean into the... Um, the Eli Roth angle, since we're talking about an Eli Roth movie. So, perfect setup. Um, real quick, be sure to check cinematary.com. We're going to have reviews up soon of the TIFF movies that we saw. Um, so, check it, find those hopefully by the end of the month um, at the website. But let's go ahead and start talking about some movies. Uh, Michael, I'm going to kick it off with you. You, you were. Where had you not seen any Eli Roth movies and you're trying to kind of journey through it or what's yeah basically I had seen Cabin Fever which I think is his directorial debut or something which is just like okay uh so like like a bunch of irritating people get killed in a cabin um but uh, I signed up for this because I was thinking maybe this is my my time to get on the Eli Roth train because there is a train full of Eli Roth fans, and I thought, let's see what they're up to. And um, so I actually reached out to Nadine uh, and said, what should I watch? And Nadine suggested I watch the Hostel movies, the first two, I guess. Uh, And then also... I am a defender, apologist, perhaps. Yeah, they were... They were good. I, they were good. But the one I want to talk about is the other one you recommended, which is Knock Knock from 2015. Um, and so I queued up Knock Knock after watching the Hostel movies and liking them to like a pretty pretty decent degree. Um, and Knock Knock stars Keanu Reeves, who is this guy uh, on uh, its Father's Day. Like the movie opens up in its Father's Day, and um, his his wife is like wishing him happy father's day. And then his kids come and wish him happy father's day. And he seems real happy, right? He's got this nice domestic life. Uh, and his family goes away for like the weekend. Um, but he has to stay home and work, uh, on, on father's day, or I guess they're gone for the day. I'm not really sure. It feels like a weekend, even though father's day is usually a Sunday. It doesn't really matter though. Um, the important thing is, while his family is gone, there's a torrential rain, and during this torrential rain, these two young ladies knock on the door, hence the title of the movie. Um, and he opens the door, and they're like, Uber has dropped them off in the wrong place, and they're supposed to be across town, and so I have to call another Uber uh, to get across town, but because it's like a rainy weekend night, there's not a lot of people Ubering, so they got to wait like 45 minutes for their next Uber. And while they're waiting, um, they're just kind of like hanging around uh, Keanu's house. And it turns out Keanu Reeves used to be a DJ in his former life before he had kids and such. And he, he collects vinyl. He collects vinyl. He makes a big point of collecting vinyl mm-hmm. um, and like explaining the vinyl to these, uh, these women. And they seem really interested. And eventually it becomes clear that they're like coming on to him and like want to have sex with him. And he's all like, oh no, I'm a married man. I'm happily married. But uh, so he's like killing time until their Uber comes. uh, While also like theoretically, at least like kind of trying not to have sex with these women who are like 
almost literally throwing himself themselves at him by the end of this. And isn't one of them Ana de Armas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I forgot about this. Um, so one of the women is actually uh, Lorenza Itzo. Um, oh yeah, who is she's uh, in this movie? Yeah, yeah. So she's. Um, I think she's married to Eli Roth. Is that correct? Yeah, she's married to Eli Roth. Yeah, I think so. Um, and then the other one is Ana de Armas, which is the earliest role that I've seen her in. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else that she's been in before this. Um, but anyway, um, so these these two people are like, come on, just, you know, monogamy is a social construct, blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, and while they're doing this, they're getting increasingly, like, undressed as well because for, like, seemingly innocent reasons, like, oh, our clothes are wet because uh, of the rain. And Keanu's like, hey, I'm going to go throw them in the dryer. Um, and so, like, honestly, like, the first, like, 30 minutes of this movie is really, really funny uh, because it's like a... It's basically like a porn setup, um, and like, but Keanu is like refusing to admit that he's in the setup for a very long time. It's almost like the beginning of, um, of uh, uh, oh shoot, uh, how am I forgetting? Um, Shaun, yeah, it's almost like the beginning of Shaun of the Dead. How like for the first thirty minutes, no one sees the zombies around them because they're oblivious. Oh, yeah. and, like Keanu's kind of doing that, except that he's in porn. Um, <laughs> but finally, uh, he kind of succumbs to the pressure and they get fairly coercive and i don't know like the one of the interesting things is like the extent to which like the the sex that he eventually has with these two people is consensual or not um because he objects pretty vehemently at times but regardless he they do the deed um all night long apparently um and he wakes up in the morning and uh they're still there they've missed their uber and they're still in his house. And I hate it when that happens. And they've turned. I saw someone on Letterboxd compare this movie to Gremlins, and like in a certain <laughs> way, that's like apt because he fed them after midnight, basically, and they've Maybe. turned wow. into mayhem. Uh, like they're he wakes up and they've cooked breakfast, but they've like trashed the kitchen and doing so. They're like throwing pancakes across the room and things like that, and they just won't leave his house anymore. Uh, and eventually they start trying to blackmail him um, because, you know, they have evidence now that he's slept with them. And not only has he now cheated on his wife, uh, but they also tell him that they are underage, um, which is like a, mo- a note of ambiguity in the movie because there's other stuff in the movie that indicates that they are, in fact, lying about that. But it's not clear. Um, and so then the movie devolves into basically like a home invasion movie in which like these people that he invited in and had sex with will not leave. They like simply will not leave his house. And then they start torturing him. Uh, Simply Boone Wellington. It truly is. Uh, They start torturing him first psychologically and then like actually physically. um, And it gets pretty grody um, by the end. Uh, And that's kind of like the movie. Uh, And, I liked it. I thought it was really funny, like, to be honest. Like, uh, one of the things I had heard about Eli Roth is, like, oh, his movies are funny. These are all, like, uh, like horror comedies. And I didn't really feel that to a great extent in, like, Hostel. Like, there's an element of humor in those movies, but those movies are very grim. And this movie, though, is just very funny. Like, not just the setup, but also, like, where this movie eventually goes. It, like, escalates in absurdity to points that I think are, like amusing and they're also kind of gross though too and like that's kind of like the tension of the movie is that there's like this kind of like amusing like absurdity that's also grounded in like 
these weird gender politics, and I'm not exactly sure how to sort them out, and I'm curious if Nadine maybe has more insight being a fan, but it's like, in some ways, it's like the, uh, the like, middle-aged heterosexual man's, like, worst nightmare uh, of, like, the... This is, like, a pre-Me Too movie, but it, like, has, like, elements of that where he's like, I was coerced into sleeping with these young women who the next morning then say that I have like abused them and raped them and all that but I was the victim and like it's very much a movie that can play into that but then there's also like a lot of stuff in the movie that is deeply ambiguous about Keanu's character and like the extent to which yeah he's like a good very unlikable and like very much this sort of like you know like like the sort of detail about him being this like vinyl snob he's like just sort of this spoiled kind of aloof like yeah you know and and so it writes that line of like you know is he indulging here like is he being you know sort of passive and sort of entertaining their company when he could maybe be like ushering them out a little bit more aggressively or you know is is he genuinely being sort of you know violated it it sort of asked that question of like what's the the power dynamic it does and he has this you know it's pretty constantly he has this speech near the end of the movie that is honestly hilarious um you remember the free pizza speech nadine (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) because at the end of the movie he's like so mad at these girls slash women like you know it's 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 unclear what their age is um actually but he's so mad at them uh and he gives this like rant that honestly it feels like a brett kavanaugh like style rant like you know being you know in front of the supreme court or something like that where he is like justifying himself and his behavior but the way that he does so is really weird and revealing like he is like i was just minding my own business you guys came to my house and then just started throwing yourself at me it was like free pizza what was i supposed to do um I don't know. There's just something very revealing and weird about like him saying that these women are like free pizza. I don't know. It's, but it's also very funny because Keanu is like peak Keanu in this movie in the sense of like, he's like kind of stilted and has this, you know, Keanu has this, like, uh, I can't, I can't mimic him, but that a lot of people make fun of his limited acting in like stuff like Bram Stoker's Dracula or something like that. And like this movie is kind of leaning into his, his like, stiltedness and it's but i feel like you know the the kind of opinion the critical opinion has changed a lot on keanu um i mean he's always had his fans and defenders but i just feel like the overall opinion of him the past few years and a lot of it is like his public persona and whatnot but you know it's just become like much more positive overwhelmingly i feel like than it, it kind of was in the past and people were much more like you know would were much more likely to make jokes about that kind of stiltedness and the sort of like Bill and Ted, you know, dumb surfer guy affect or whatever. Uh, and, and I feel like this is the rare, because I don't know now he's, I mean, I, I got, I'm trying to think of like the most recent thing I saw him in, but maybe it's just the like nature of John Wick or something being kind of different but i feel like not knock knock is like the rare movie recently that like plays into because that yeah something like john wick plays into another part of his persona which is like the action hero badass matrix point break etc you know like and this goes yeah, into that's, that that's bram yeah. stoker like the lake house you know that sort yeah. of like melodramatic <laughs> 
weird Keanu where it's like he's trying to convince you he's a real human and there's something that feels sort of strange about it. Like, almost like putty from Seinfeld <laughs> a little bit. Something like, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I I like this movie. As with a lot of Eli Roth, like, it it rides... It's, it's very provocative, like, intentionally so, and is... Definitely. Really rides a fine line in terms of, like... It finds, like, the kind of, like, nerve, like, the, the open, like, nervy topics and, like, really pokes at them in ways that are, like, uncomfortable to deal with, but also, like, with plausible deniability of, like, oh, am I really making this kind of, like, reactionary, like, you know, anti-women movie, or is it actually, you know, a commentary on this? Like, there's a lot of, like, that, and I felt yeah. like that that's, like, a through line in all of the... Eli Roth movies I've seen is that playing with really hot button issues in a way that doesn't like have a very clear theme or motive. And so it leaves you like a big part of the movie is kind of questioning what those motives are um, and being kind of fascinated by the possibilities of what they could be while also kind of like feeling a little gross and repulsed in a way. I don't know. That's, that was my kind of feeling on knock knock. Yeah. No, it's, you know, there's, I don't think this movie was like a deliberate influence or conscious influence when he was going in, but there is an interview from when the movie came out where the interviewer asks him if he's seen um, a movie that has been discussed on the podcast before you know a few years ago uh but daisy's um, yeah it is 100% love a film um and he's like oh yeah you know like totally you know i like that movie like i could totally see the comparison there like you know somebody should program that as a double feature ha you know um so i don't think that was a conscious influence but i do think it hits this very similar kind of point of just like and you know i mentioned like boonwell sort of jokingly earlier but i think there's some of that energy and, and even a little you know um, problem another problematic filmmaker but there's definitely some like kind of 60s 70s Polanski vibes like the tenant or something where it's this kind of isolated bottled up space and like things are going haywire and it's a little bit theatrical you know and, and then kind of like the bottled isolated location and the premise I feel like um but I feel like there is that kind of like sort of 60s kind of like comedy of like you know manners social norms kind of thing where it's just like a very different sort of socio-political movie or whatever you want to call it than like usually I feel like it's made now I feel like now especially in you know this isn't like a quite a clear horror movie in the way that something like Hostel is you know I feel like it's got that sort of thrillery I don't know, it's just, it's it's got multiple tones, which Eli Roth usually does, but um, I just feel like it, it, you know, it's like so many horror movies now are, are very kind of directly stating their themes and intentions and, and metaphors and stuff, and I feel like Eli Roth, you know, throws a lot of contentious, complicated things out there, but it never really quite lands in one direction. And so there is that element, like you said, of like, you know, it, it does sort of feel like there is an element of like, maybe Eli Roth himself even kind of has these feelings or 
illicit desires, especially casting his wife yeah, in sure. it, being a you know a middle aged man himself. Like there is that kind of self implication a little bit, which in some ways like you know makes it maybe more problematic, but in other ways also makes it more like uh, aware of itself maybe um, because I feel like he is a little bit more willing to like acknowledge. Him. I don't know just the way he kind of casts himself like sometimes even in like bit parts and stuff in his movies as like a like in Hostel I think he's like you know in the background or whatever is like a dumb tourist in a club and I think you know Cabin Fever also he's like another kind of like very Scooby-Doo like character and I feel like that willingness to sort of like he is very much in some ways like a film school bro like that's his sort of background but there is a real I think sort of a good naturedness a little bit in a weird way which is a weird word to, to apply to him but just in terms of like he is willing to sort of take himself down a few pegs um and i think that it's you know it's almost kind of a like brian de palma thing a little bit where it's just like a lot there's a lot of weird gaze and desire and stuff sort of being acknowledged and played with and it doesn't really go one way or the other yeah, I definitely. I haven't now. I haven't seen the movie, but like to your point, I think a lot of um, a lot of the the kind of well regarded horror movies today, it very much is like going. This is what it's about, and like we're gonna tell you about that. You know, it's usually trauma because they're not that unique, and so it's like trauma. That's what we're gonna be talking about, or something. It's very telegraphed on like what they're talking about, and it's almost like a lecture where it's like just you know follow this and take notes. And, and from what you're describing, it seems like this more, it has those ideas, but it's not about that. It's just those are just kind of baked into the story itself and are kind of coming out of that naturally. And it's not saying that whether it's good or bad, it's just kind of saying this is just some weird shit happening in the mind. And um, yeah, I agree. That's not necessarily what you find in a lot of modern horror movies, or not modern, but like recent horror movies. I think um, there's like an... In- I think one of the things that's like very pronounced in this movie and also the hostile movies though, is also this kind of impishness in realizing that like the moment he does certain things in the movie, people are going to start to try to look for those like telegraphed messages. And then he like refuses to give them uh, at all. Like the hostile movies are very much like informed by like American intervention in like Afghanistan and stuff like, uh, they're like like the imagery is like straight from like you know Abu Ghraib and like Guantanamo and like all those sort of things um but there is there's like a refusal to uh like make a it's not a refusal to make a thesis but it's a refusal to like have a thesis that is like easily parsed as like a single like thematic statement or something um yeah and also the um the his death wish remake remake is very much the same way where it's like constantly with a lot of the sort of signifiers it uses it's like is this legitimately reactionary or is this like a representation of the paranoid delusions of a conspiratorial middle-aged white man who's like losing his grip on society and it kind of goes back and forth where it's like what is the perspective here is it sincere is it ironic yeah well, the other movie... Which, like, in that movie, there's like, an incredible image where Bruce Willis reads uh, Milton Friedman. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, um... True horror. You know, do it that way. Uh, 
Yeah. The uh, the other movie I wanted to talk about came directly out of this because after I finished Knock Knock, I looked it up on Wikipedia, and it turns out that it's a remake of a 70s movie. So in a sense, it makes sense that we were just comparing this to like kind of older horrors like from the 70s and stuff uh, because this is like in a lot of ways beat for beat, like uh, a 70s movie called Death Game, uh, which... Uh, stars Colleen Camp um, as like the Anadarmus character and then uh, let's see who's the other person in this someone named Sandra Locke I'm not familiar with with her uh, Colleen Camp actually oh she was um, she was married to Clint Eastwood no way wow a lot of wives yeah. in these movies they work together on a lot of things uh, Colleen Camp makes a bit appearance in Knock Knock. She's the concerned neighbor who shows up. Oh my God, I uh, forgot that. But she's uh, like one of the gremlins in this movie. Uh, and this movie, like, <laughs> honestly, this movie took Knock Knock down a couple pegs for me because it is so... If I had watched this movie first, Knock Knock wouldn't have felt so intriguing. It's kind of like one of those where it's like so close. Um, and also like the film style is unhinged. Like it's completely unhinged. Uh, whereas like Knock Knock is very like smooth and considered, which is kind of like Eli Roth's thing. He's very technically precise. Whereas this movie was made with this, uh, like the set and the shooting was like chaotic apparently because there were like financial problems that halted production at multiple points. Uh, people apparently were like just miserable and didn't get along with each other and stuff. And so I think this movie was kind of stitched together in the editing room and as a result um, just feels, I don't know, it feels like like brushing up against like psychedelic film or something like that. Um, while at the same time like hitting the same beats that in the, as are in that movie and uh, I actually like this movie better than Knock Knock. Um, I mean, they're both worth watching if any of this sounds interesting, but uh, this is the one that feels like, uh, I don't know, there's just, maybe it's just me preferring like that kind of like grimy, like 70s, like uh, like grindhouse aesthetic. But like, there is something about this movie. This movie, like I, like very much feels like daisies. Like, and it's not just like the style of the film, but like the way that the girls act is like, much more chaotic like the girls in the in knock knock are kind of they're sinister and calculating um and i mean they're eventually kind of chaotic as well but it's always like very calculated and thought through or it seems to be thought through whereas the girls in this movie are like completely out of um uh like just like like completely out of control uh in a way that very much feels like daisies there's even a bunch of like food destruction in this movie like there is in daisies um and in, in fact like they get so busy like throwing food around and throwing it at this middle-aged man that they have like tied up that they run out of food and have to order groceries because they forgot that they also need to eat um as they're like keeping this guy hostage um and so there's like that sort of stuff that kind of indicates that they're just really acting off of the cuff um the middle-aged guy in this movie the keanu character is like kind of like he's just a lot more obviously gross and maybe it's just a difference in time period like someone from like a well-to-do middle-aged man in the 70s just scans as grosser uh to us now than like a well-to-do middle-aged man in the 2010s uh that's nice but he uh, at least we've progressed and uh, you know how middle-aged men are men are maybe you know, i mean maybe it's film. just a maybe it's just a context thing but he's got like 
you know, the classic like porn stash. He's got oh, in fact, like when he's having the threesome with the the women, there's like legit like porn music, like the kind of like slap bass sort of thing going on. Yeah, it like really leans into like the porn stuff, um, which makes sense because like a lot of exploitation film at the time was just like you know in the same like bubbling in the same waters as like actual porn um you know so it makes sense that there's like a crossover like that's much more conscious in this movie but um at any rate um death game is really cool and really wild and it feels it's the kind of movie that feels like you're watching it and you're just being like shaken by the movie the whole time because it's just like flipping everywhere uh and there's these like wild like dissolves um in fact, like the the like kind of sex montage is like there's like three or four dissolves of like sexual acts on top of each other. Um, so it's just like this like swirling like like uh, like uh, phantasmagoric uh, like uh, miasma of like human skin just like swirling in front of you like as the like porn music plays and. Uh, I don't know. Like, I recommend seeking this movie. I'm, I, I'm, I'm recommending both movies, but like, if you gotta watch one, I would say Death Game is the one. Uh, oh, I didn't finish though. The guy who, um, the guy who uh, is the Keanu character is played by Seymour Castle, um, and uh, like I said, he's a lot more gross. He's a lot more. There's, there's a lot less characterization of him in this movie. He almost is like a symbol or an archetype, because you like the amount of time that it takes between him. Uh, the beginning of the movie and then him like sleeping with these women is like maybe under 10 minutes. Like the movie like speeds through that. And so there's a lot less of this, like we're kind of analyzing his happy home life. And then we're analyzing like his record collection and stuff like that. He's just, I think he's like on the phone with like a business partner or something like chuckling about like some business deal. And he's got this gross like stash and he's just like, you know, he's basically just like sitting on top of the world just like chuckling. And then in come these two women who like immediately humiliate him like after sex and just like it just is deranged and like a lot more pointed. And I don't know that this movie really lends itself to a theme like but it's also not coy about what it's doing like Eli Roth can be like it's very much like this dude is the worst and we're going to show you a movie in which he's just humiliated for like an hour um which that's funny because uh I feel like more like like in terms of recent context people know Seymour Castle from being Max Fisher's dad in Rushmore oh my god I think he was in a couple other Wes Anderson movies yeah. No way. Yeah, this is um Wes Anderson could never make this movie. <laughs> I would be super down to watch a Wes Anderson what you just described as Death Game, but Wes Anderson makes it. Oh Wes God. Anderson should make it just a movie that where people fuck. I that would be weird. I um I will say the one like Wes Anderson element of this movie. Uh, now that we mention it, is there's like this repeated song throughout because it's like a '70s movie, and what would what would a '70s movie be without like just two or three songs on the soundtrack that you repeat multiple times? Um, and there's this song called uh, Let me see if I can find the title of it, but it's like this like really jaunty like sounds like it's like a Shirley Temple musical song or something like that uh, about like how awesome Good Old Dad uh, is the name of the song that it opens the movie. Uh, and it's like this like jaunty like old school Father musical song about like how nice dad is and how he taught me all these manners or whatever and then so like as you see this businessman like chortling about business uh 
is playing that song and then like it plays that song periodically throughout the rest of the movie while these women are just like brutalizing him um i don't know it's like the only thing that feels wes anderson-y is like having this like semi-ironic like vintage song that plays at certain points anyway i've talked a lot about my two movies but uh they're both worth watching different different vibes but very similar plots well, knock knock. Uh, I I just looked. I'll just say so. Lorenza Izzo or whatever her name is, and Eli Roth got divorced in twenty nineteen. When? Twenty nineteen. So. Oh, I thought you said twenty sixteen. I was like, it was the movie. I mean. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah, I feel like you know this is kind of a weird movie to make with the person you're. Yeah, it's a little uh, eyes wide shut. Yeah. Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman kind of vibe going on. All right, well, Nadine, I'm going to toss it over to you to talk a little bit about another another nice horror auteur, modern horror auteur, Rob Zombie. Yeah, and, and another uh, wife guy, I guess, Big also. Old wife guy. Because uh, a, a slightly bigger wife guy because they are still together and um, seem to perhaps always, you know, they seem deep, very deeply in love because the films of Mr. Robert Zombie, are, are pretty much all of them, I think, star his wife, Sherry Moon Zombie, in a pretty major capacity. And even, like, Halloween, too, you know, she's like a phantasm or something, and he just finds his excuse to sneak her in there. And uh, even though his movies are very violent and frequently very depraved, there is a lot of love um, in them. And The Munsters is very fittingly a love story about... Herman Munster, um, and whatever his, uh, the Bride of Munsters. <laughs> the Bride is. of Munsters. Mrs. Um, Mrs. Munster. <laughs> I don't know, the spooky Count Chocula, like. Uh, Lily Munster. Lily Munster, there we go. I like the Lily Bride Munster, of Munster, though. Her search for a, a sufficiently, uh, undead husband to be betrothed to, you know, she's living with her, like, vampire counts dad uncle older relative guardian figure and he's like oh none you know trying to set her up with all these like frigid ghouls and she's like no i want someone to eat brains with or something i don't know and, and she one day catches the eye of uh, herman munster who has been brought to life through a scientific experiment, much like the monster of Frankenstein. Um, and he is like some genius brain being put in a, I don't know, you know, one of those kind of things, uh, some, some golem stuff, uh, and but the the experiment goes wrong and you know but he's like this artistic genius he's basically kind of like the joker like in the joker being a stand-up comic um like he's doing this weird like performance art and he's this like sensitive creative soul um he's in a like noise band actually much it's it seems to be very perhaps something of a of a adaptation indirect adaptation of the story of rob zombie and sherry moon zombie falling in love because much like the band of herman munster in this film uh rob zombie's musical career of course um and the band white zombie actually began as something 
you know, the, one of the more famous uh, bands that is associated with the new metal category in the 1990s. But they actually started as like something much more of a noise art rock project at the and they were students at the Pratt Institute in New York and so kind of coming out of that like New York downtown scene a little bit and I think you can see that in and hear that in Rob Zombie's music and in his movies there's a very kind of like collage element I mean you can tell fittingly that his dream project project uh, aside from a biopic of Groucho Marx, which hopefully will someday still happen, but the Munsters was his dream project because he's a huge fan, and you know there is a kind of like channel changing element to a lot of his work where there's just like all of these little quotations, things pulled from various old horror movies. You know he's a huge fan of the Universal monster movies. Uh, I feel like you know in his Halloween remakes he almost treats. Michael Myers as more like a sort of Frankenstein type tragic figure as opposed to this sort of just like vessel for violence that is the kind of original John Carpenter, uh, you know, imagination of it. Um, you know, he's kind of interested in, and then he's something like the devil's rejects too is like, does ask you in a weird way to like have some kind of empathy for these like horrible violent people. Um, and I feel like that's just kind of like very much what those what quality that that the early old school monster movies that we think of have you know i feel like there was this just sort of like oh the tragic downfall of you know the the you new know, the outsider scientist whose experiment goes wrong or whatever the tragic count and like you know all of that kind of stuff there's always this just sort of like pity the the monster you know kind of element to it so I, it's, you know, it, it makes sense, I feel like, that he would be attracted to something like the Monsters, which is, like, you know, turning literally monsters and horror into a sitcom and into this family-friendly kind of thing. Um, and so a lot of it, a lot of that movie is this just, like, love story between Herman and, and Lily. Um, and so it's obviously a very different tone than most of Rob Zombie's movies, which have frequently skirted the line of NC-17. I think House of a Thousand Corpses sat on the, the studio shelf for like a couple of years because he really just was like, this is probably my one shot at a movie. Let's just go all out. Of course, it was not the only movie he made, but all his movies consistently since then have gone pretty all out in terms of content and a fitting kind of connection to, you know, we were just talking about Eli Roth, um, and this much like the movie we'll be talking about next, House of, with a Clock in Its Walls, this is, you know, a sort of child-friendly foray for a really grisly horror filmmaker, and both of those dudes were included in the original essay that coined the infamous term torture porn, uh, which I believe was written by David Edelstein for New York Magazine in, like, 2004, 2005, and it's a really interesting list of movies because... You can see how, like, why they were lumped together, but on their own, they're all very different movies. You have Hostel by, of course, Mr. Eli Roth, the first Saw movie, uh, Wolf Creek, which the interesting thing is just, like, all of these movies are kind of read as very American, like, Iraq War-related, and obviously the Iraq-Afghanistan were, like, international conflicts and stuff, but Wolf Creek is an Australian slasher. Um, the Devil's Rejects by Rob Zombie, and... 
The Passion of the Christ uh, was also included <laughs> in that lineup of torture porn movies, which, like, you know, you can make a case, I think. Uh, but they are pretty different movies, and, like, The Devil's Rejects, I think, is, like, very much in this kind of, like, 70s, almost like the Wild Bunch, Bonnie and Clyde type mode. Um, so, you know, he Rob Zombie works a lot in these kind of, like, homage, vaguely, like, Tarantino-ish style so the monsters in some ways is very it's very uh, it's a weirdly like faithful adaptation and that it's just like feels like a tv show um it just has this very sort of like episodic lackadaisical quality um it's just kind of a vibe movie it's very colorful it is it has a very weird you know it feels very stagey very you know, like a set, you know, like it could have been filmed with a live audience. Um, and in some ways it almost feels like a bid for a pilot for a, a reboot of the monsters because it ends with them like going to Hollywood, ending up in the real human world from this like perpetually Transylvania, like alternate reality that they inhabit. They like come into the real world of the suburbs and live in their house. And then at the end of the movie, sort of reverse Wizard of Oz, it goes to black and white, and then you have the end credits, which are the opening credits of the show. Um, so all in all, you know, it's it's definitely necessarily not up there for me with the best works of Rob Zombie, which are really gut-riching and emotional and almost like Lynchian a little bit for me. Um, but I did enjoy it quite a bit. It's very colorful. It's very fun. There's a song called Disco Vampire in it. That's a big bop kind of um my one my one complaint is that one of my favorite on-screen performers mr kevin nash um actor you know star of such films as magic mike double xl professional wrestler former basketball player for the university of tennessee he said in a recent interview with stone cold steve austin that herman munster was his dream role because you know he's a big guy but a gentle giant and he he does act and is in a lot of things mostly like direct to video bullshit uh and you know there's just like that kind of performer who's very physically imposing and large you know there's not a lot of more like sensitive roles and herman munster is a very sensitive character so i am kind of disappointed that i don't even know who it is who's herman munster jeff daniel phillips yeah there's some it's a very weird cat like there's not really any stars in this movie it's sort of odd yeah this this guy hasn't done like you could have just had yeah, kevin nash kevin nash honestly would have been like the biggest name yeah in the movie. no and that's the kind of the one <laughs> thing that is a little odd about it is i'm just like i don't exactly know how rob zombie made because it is a you know intellectual property also it could be a franchise starter or whatever but it's just this weird little love story with like no name actors in it so I guess he just made it so cheaply that they were just like, what the hell? We'll put it on Netflix. But, you know, it's on Netflix. It's a good time. So this year's Hubie, Hubie Halloween. While we wait for Hubie Halloween, too. I gotta, I gotta do my, my Ooh, annual rewatch yeah, of Hubie Halloween. Sure. Which sickens Andrew. So it's really fun. <laughs> um. All right, well, let's take, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk about that old, that old house with a clock in its wall after this. 
back with part two of episode 426 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be continuing our young, or not young critics, holy shit, I'm so tired, um, our Horror for Kids series with 2018. Young Horror. Our young, yeah, young Horror World. <laughs> young Horror World <laughs> critic series with 2018's The House with a Clock in Its Walls. Um, directed by Eli Roth from a script by... Movies were too old to be watching. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um... No, I'm off, I'm off it. Directed by Eli Roth from a script by Eric Kripke. Based on the novel of the same name by John Belairs. The film stars Jack Black, Kate Blanchett, Owen Vaccaro, and Kyle MacLachlan. Ten-year-old Lewis goes to live with his oddball uncle in a creaky old house that contains a mysterious TikTok noise. He soon learns... TikTok? Yeah, right? <laughs> it's real timely. <laughs> he soon learns... Also, I keep... I'm sorry, but I said to myself in my head, Kyle Mc clocklin i can't i can't stop about that we're here all night folks Uh, he soon he soon learns that uncle jonathan and his feisty neighbor mrs zimmerman all right that's an adjective our powerful calling camp by the way (laughs) yeah that's true um, are powerful practitioners of the magic arts. When Lewis accidentally awakens the dead, the town's sleepy facade suddenly springs to life, revealing a secret and dangerous world of witches, warlocks, and deadly curses. That describes nothing of what happens in this movie. And boy witches. Boy witches. That's right. He has a real hard time with the term warlock. Um, Eli Roth talking about why he chose to make this movie in a 2018 interview with Collider said I understand that I've certainly branded myself and marketed myself that way so I understand why people would think of me um, that way but think uh, think about my favorite directors like Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson and I look at their early movies and where they went in their careers I remember when I thought wow Sam Raimi is doing Spider-Man I want to see what that guy what the guy who did Evil Dead will do with Spider-Man and I wanted to see what Peter Jackson the guy who did Bad Taste and Meet the Feebles uh, would do with Lord of the Rings and how he would apply that sensibility to the fantasy genre so I always looked at myself as hoping to have that kind of career trajectory like Guillermo del Toro Sam Raimi Tim Burton and Peter Jackson I've wanted to do a Terry Gilliam uh, Time Bandits kind of movie, and I said to my agents, uh, "He is just dropping names." He, is. Man. he said, "Find <laughs> me a Time Bandits, otherwise I'll just have to write something." They were like, "He, he did Hostel. How are we going to fund that?" But that's where Steven Spielberg and Amblin came in. Steven loves Hostel. He saw it and got got it and said, <laughs> yes. "Quote: Yeah, I completely get how this can translate." That man is a freak. The, the director of Jaws <laughs> went on to make ET. That makes perfect sense in his head. So he really backed me and supported me when i think back to my childhood those violent movies that i've known uh for now i didn't know until i was maybe 12 or 13 and they were on vhs at a sleepover the movies that i saw in theater when i was 9 10 11 and 12 were those scary amblin movies that were everything to me like et raiders gremlins goonies poltergeist and even harry ghostbusters and the harry and the hendersons <laughs> there were other oddball movies like time bandits where the kids parents blow up at the end and a guy gets turned into a pig that was mind-blowing as a child i had never seen anything like that there were other movies like dragon slayer the dark crystal and labyrinth that were much closer to grimm's fairy tales where characters die they're very dark stories that aren't always funny but those are the movies that were gateway drug movies those were the movies that got you into scary movies um and you wonder why he is friends with quentin tarantino exactly right 
uh, Roth on the scene, uh, the automaton scene. I just I just added this because it's really funny. I love creepy automatons. I said to Steven Spielberg, I was like, I want to have a scene where the automatons attack. And Steven said, I love automatons. I collect <laughs> automatons. My kids won't let me put them in the house because they say they're too creepy. He has them packed away in crates. He has a warehouse with crates of automatons. He said, can I put them in the movie? And he was like, really? You want to put my automatons in the movie and i was like of course steven spielberg i'd like to use your automatons there's a history with magicians and automatons and i thought what if they came to life and attack they could be one of my signature scenes our art department was so into building the automatons they're all horror fans who are tatted up and they wanted to have a real satanic looking one we named all of them i sat in the room with those automatons and thought i just want to live here Seinfeld bit. They're just saying the word automaton over and over again. I'm also convinced now that Steven Spielberg's ostensible warehouse full of automatons is the like Area 51 from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Honestly, I just want to read uh, Eli Roth interviews about this movie. They're all they're all like that wild. The quotes that you read were more entertaining than the movie itself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jack Black on the Horror for Kids angle in an interview with uh, Entertainment Weekly. Things have changed, obviously, because of the YouTubes. Kids are exposed to some things that they didn't used to be, so sadly, yeah, there might be a little bit of numbness. But this is an opportunity for us to curate a good, scary experience that doesn't include anything that's too nightmare-inducing. That was definitely part of the appeal of doing the movie. That dang slender man. (laughs) It's a movie you take the kids to. And not worry that they're going to be too freaked out. Uh, the New York Times 2018 said the pleasures of the movie are mainly in the design of the Victorian house and its grounds replete with a chair that behaves like a dog and in the af- uh, affection for recreating the 1950s period down to the surprise use of Ovaltine. Mr. Black is perhaps too sardonic a presence, but Miss Blanchette, as a fellow spellcaster, takes evident pleasure in deadpanning lines like, I melted Salvador Dali's watch once right off his wrist. Playing material like this with conviction is its own form of magic. And the LA Times 2018 said, for all its loud wallpaper and diverting CGI bric-a-brac, this late lavish reimagining of Casa uh, Brenavalent, whatever the hell John or Jack Black's character is, cannot quite compete with the book's illustrations rendered by the great Edward Gorey for sheer evocative strangeness. Still, there is plenty to marvel at here with the sentimental jack-o'-lanterns and flatulent plant sculptures to the stained glass window, whose colorful images seem to morph every hour. (sighs) On that note, House with the Clock at its walls. Um, Nadine, I'm curious, had you seen this before as like an Eli Roth person, or was this the first time? I had not, actually. Um, This is the last of his feature films that I have uh, not not seen. And, um, you know, I was definitely curious because it seemed like an outlier and I was sort of interested to see him do that kind of homage to the many films that uh, he listed off in that interview that you quoted. I can't even name um, three of them. You know, <laughs> the I don't even know the last movie like that had an Amblin Entertainment card at the beginning of it. Like, I don't know what even i was like halfway convinced when i watched it because they have the old universal logo 
like at the beginning too and i was like is this just a bit like is it just like pretending to be like an older movie but no like it's real but like for a half second i was like maybe this is just like part of the pastiche and and i'm always you know sort of interested by movies like this where they're like intentionally you know a filmmaker who's really kind of typecast i guess uh, whatever the directorial equivalent of that is is trying to stretch um their their you know normal boundaries a little bit okay i'm pulling up amblin entertainment oh wow they there's a lot more amblin movies than i thought like I mean, most of the, like, Spielberg things, you know, but um, Cats, A Dog's Purpose, A Dog's Journey, The Hundred, I guess so, The Hundred Foot Journey, some J.J. Abrams movies, a movie that I was thinking about while watching this, Monster House. Wow, that's also an Amblin movie that's basically kind of the same movie, Monster House, The Living House. Um, and yeah, there's right. yes, the cats you're thinking about, Michael. There's it, it is an Amblin movie. There's a lot of uh, you know. Huh. There's some interesting things about this movie, um, but it is definitely, I think, a, a little bit of a you know for the for the auteurists, for the for the you know real fans. Like if you're like convince me that Eli Roth is an interesting filmmaker, I don't think I would necessarily direct you towards the house with the clock and its walls first um you know there are those kind of genuine i feel like sort of elements of those kind of ambling movies like i was thinking a little bit in some of the effects and stuff like part where like the stained glass is like making words it, it's kind of like some of those like early like industrial light and magic special effects movies like young sherlock holmes and like I don't know, just that kind of, like, young adult movie, and it's sort of, but the thing about it is, is it's not really that much of a, like, departure for Eli Roth in a lot of ways, because it's still pretty gross and horrific, um, and... The, the barfing pumpkins are pretty Yeah, gross. and Michael, you know, you mentioned in, when talking about Knock Knock, just his sort of, like, formal elegance... So, like, I can see why he would be attracted to the idea of a haunted house movie because, like, I don't know, you watch something like The Conjuring movies and those feel almost like amusement park rides a little bit. Like, there's just a lot of things going on and kind of contraptions and, like, you know, you have a very just, like, sense of space. And I and I felt like this movie never really had a clearly defined, like, sense of space. It's very surprisingly kind of dim and, like, washed out and... You know, I was watching the credits and I spotted the little uh, state of Georgia peach. And, you know, I just feel like that just kind of says a lot about the visual style where it's that sort of like, just, you know, totally green screen warehouse, like previs sort of. They filmed it in uh, Atlanta. Yeah, you know, so it has the sort of Marvel sort of sheen to it a little bit. I mean, it really like in terms of the color palette and stuff, isn't that different than like Doctor Strange or something. Like, There's some nice details but what is can i can i interrupt like what is what has happened to like effects driven movies or even like not effects driven like movies like that are like digital film movies like are so hard to watch these days because of the the color and the lighting is just so dim like i watched the the new predator movie prey and which was like pretty good but it was hard to watch because it was the lighting like Dude, you sucked. should watch an episode like, of like game of thrones it's it's I'd rather like it's terrible. Like why? I don't what know. is ha- it's terrible? Like 
this is a this is a tangent, but what has happened? I watched a movie from like ten years ago, and it's like the colors pop even on a movie that's not like meant to have popping colors. Like I don't know what. I don't know what's going on, Hollywood. Nobody but... knows how to light a scene. I don't know. Yeah, like, what is... Is it that... I don't know. Is it is it that, like, whatever, like, effect style is being used now, people haven't, like, adjusted lighting techniques to make it work? Or I don't know. Yeah, I think that could... I don't yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know enough about the specific technical nitty-gritty, but that would kind of make sense to me. Especially just considering, like, how, like, how much of the image is like being sort of digitally constructed you know it's like i feel like it's not just like filling in little details you know it's like really having to create so much of the image in post-production that i just feel like i it's hard for me to imagine that that just doesn't like throw kind of a lot of things off and um and I, you know, yeah, there are these like com- kind of compelling imaginative images and stuff like the you, you mentioned the pumpkins, and you know, like some stuff like that. But I felt like it was a lot of missed potential. Um, honestly, there is some like interesting subtext. It's very gay coded. I felt like personally. Um, yeah, we need to get we need to get to that real, real quick though on on the on like the effects and stuff. To play devil's advocate, I agree they're not perfect. And, and, like, if they were practical, like, you know, I'm thinking about a movie we watched. Well, last week you have The Addams Family, and the week before we had The Witches, which are both two great practical effects movies. But I do – the thing I did like about this movie is that at least – it seems like they're trying with the with like he's trying with the VFX. Like I would give him like it seems like they're trying more than like a Marvel movie to do to at least like create something that seems like again they're kind of going for the horror effect but like you mentioned I mean we talked about the automatons you had the automatons you had the the pumpkins you had It is also um, like um very return to odds you know movie we did in the first iteration. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, like I'm not saying it's perfect, but no, I was like, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. do, I do appreciate this more than a lot of other movies that like lean on VFX because I'm like, at least this one's trying to create stuff that's not just the same, you know, the same little green screen orb all over again. Yeah, the design of like the the actual design of stuff is pretty cool. Like the house looks like the house doesn't look cool because of like the the lighting problems i've talked about but in terms of like what the house is and like how it like how it's modeled that looks pretty neat too like i think there's a lot of cool stuff on in terms of like production design or whatever the digital version of that is it, and if anything that i wish they um because i liked this well enough uh i i wasn't too too sure about it i liked it well enough though and i i appreciated that it like went as weird as you possibly could go like in modern movie times because i'm like i'm surprised when you when we were talking in the break that like this did pretty well at the box office because i'm like this seems like one that would just be kind of ignored today because it's too it's too weird There's you know it's just too weird like kids movies that i feel like really slot into the like live i mean i don't know i I feel like just the majority of of kid marketed movies today are like entirely animated and this sort of like yeah and this sort of like you know it's it's kind of edgy but also kind of kid friendly it's like i don't know how much no i mean it's it's a disturbing movie a lot of times like (laughs) you know it's like it's not a 
it's not it's a very it's a very disturbing movie a lot of times for at least you know like for a kids movie like that automaton scene is pretty freaking creepy because steven spielberg has a creepy ass collection of of those things i guess but um (laughs) but no like i think um i i was impressed with it because i do even though there's some holes in it the 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 one thing i just wish is like you're talking about the house michael i wish like the beginning of the movie we could have spit more like we kind of jump into the plot too quickly i wish we could have spent some time just like being weird and we're wasting time in the house you know like last week we talked about this with adam's family where you know 75 percent of that movie is just them dicking around you know doing stuff and i'm like i wish this movie could have just been like you got you got jack black there like just have like just have weird time um well, and he's even introduced with, like, he's like, there's no rules, kid. Do whatever you want. And then there's not a lot of, like, no rulesing about. Yeah, they jumped like, to the, the magic movie. real quickly. I wanted a little bit more of, like, you know, they had the, the chair that was alive, which I thought was really cool. But I wanted a bit more of that, like, Beauty and the Beast, like, anthropomorphized kind of shenanigans. Yeah. <laughs> Living things. Yeah. I, the beginning of this movie is really weirdly paced. Like, for instance, like the kid shows up at the house, and Jack Black's like talking. He's like, you know, what, what's your deal, kid, or whatever. And like the kid just starts crying. That like, kid's fucking died annoying. In a car crash, and he's like, and then Jack Black's like, oh man, I'm sorry. And then they kind of move on. Like, there's no like scene explaining like his parents dying or whatever. It's just like a weird bit of like exposition at the beginning of the movie, and then they just like jump in. Yeah, I'm surprised they don't show the parents die. It seems like Eli Roth would have given us just like a very disturbing scene of like a car yeah, crash. I was like, is Kyle MacLachlan his dad? Like, what's I was kind of confused a little bit with that stuff, and also it's just like I feel like there's a lot of like kids movies with like dead parents and stuff I don't know. Oh, i'm it's so like, tired of dead parent kids trope, movies like... yeah it's awful just make jack that da- jack black and kate blanchett is their yeah the parents. but it also felt well speaking of that like you know i mentioned the kind of gay coding a little bit and i feel like it does in addition to sort of interplaying with the like kind of amblin type of genre, subgenre you know being a sort of haunted house movie i feel like it is a little bit in conversation with like the sort of older hollywood kind of you know, like the uninvited or even something like Rebecca a little bit where I feel like there's just like a lot of in those movies, like, you know, just the sort of trope of the like adult bachelor or single woman who's a spinster who lives in a spooky house alone. And they're usually, it's kind of implied that they're probably gay. And especially just with the stuff here about like boy witches and you're the black swan and just like the also the friendship with the kid and the bully feels a little like you know their kids it's not like sexual but just a little bit like crushing vibes a little bit and trying to like impress your crush by bringing the yeah. dad back to life <clears throat> there's like a little bit of like unrequited element yes of that because they're like kind of friends when they're both outcasts at the beginning of the movie and then the kid arm heels and he becomes like class Which, president or something yeah, like, like, like bye bye sector like was holding him back was his arm broken they're like i don't know about you <laughs> <laughs> also I, I, I thought it was funny that they're like i don't know it's kind of, kind of this like satirical element of this like social politicking like kid because there's like the girl who's like oh he only becomes nice when he's like running for office or something <laughs> like that. yeah um no, I could definitely see that just because um, 
the, it, the plus the relationship between the Kate Blanchett character and the Jack Black character, it's it's fun, but it, it's just definitely a, a different. It doesn't feel like it's it's feeding into a trope. It's a it's a it, yeah, it's a it's an odd thing. I mean, they like have prolonged scenes where they're just like yelling at each other, and you're like, oh okay, <laughs> yeah. Um, and even 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 Kate Blanchett's character kind of just feels very um, aloof from anything like that. I did think it was kind of, I, you know, it doesn't necessarily really go anywhere, but it just in terms of, like, subtext, I was kind of interested that there's this sort of, like, I felt like implied kind of n- Nazism to, oh, that's all the, I want to you talk know, about. the Kyle MacLachlan character, where they're like, he was a warlock, and he went to war in Germany, and he got lost in the, the Black Forest and met a freaky little, I don't know, forest guy yeah little Rip Van Winkle leprechaun well dude I don't know I was I was reading a bunch of uh of like letterbox reviews who were saying that it's like this kind of like holocaust allegory of like of like not like of like he saw just like this this unimaginable evil and so he like created this narrative in his mind to like wash that out because he just couldn't live with himself dealing with that which i thought was yeah, a really that interesting scene reading. is like kind of crazy where they have the just like the foot like the b-roll newsreel world war ii footage like playing over comic clock and like having this seizure in a field and it's like kind of this weirdly like you know adult sort of expressive touch um but even though like uh, you know the automaton part you know it kind of feels a little bit like sort of uh reminds me of the like the whole golem like jewish myth of the kind of living automaton made out of clay um and it's just kind of interesting because i feel like you know something like inglorious bastards i feel like eli roth's performance in that um and just the movie in general obviously gets talked a lot about in, in conversation with jewish identity but i feel like eli roth sometimes like Something like, I don't know, just think watching this movie and thinking about that sort of like Nazi and Holocaust imagery, I was kind of like, you know, obviously in the context of the 2000s, like Hostel is in conversation with Iraq war and like the imagery of Abu Ghraib and things. But I was just like sort of looking back on it, I'm like, oh, there's clearly a sort of like Holocaust kind of subtext to especially just like being Central Eastern Europe. Um the the hostile movies you know there is this kind of like i feel like it, it it feels just a little bit sort of informed by like that historical trauma in a way yeah and there's like an element in the hostile movies that i think is kind of i don't know if it's intentionally in conversation with this movie but like there is a sort of um in 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 both the hostile movies that i saw like the characters get into this the situation you know where they're in like the 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 death cult, the death cult, or the the like torture cult, or whatever it is, and they all like have regrets about like like in the second movie, it's like from the perspective of the uh, like the actual torturers, and like one of the guys like keeps wanting to back out, but he keeps being like pulled into it, and then in the first movie, like there's like the like reluctance of this dude to like do like the frat boy like you know uh expat like kind of partying that um the main characters want to do and they're always being pulled into it and by the like there's a point in the movie where they 
there, there's like a Rubicon that they cross where like undoing anything previously is like impossible. And like, that's kind of like the horror of Hostel is like, even were these people to escape, which one of them does at the end of the host first Hostel movie, there is like no undoing their getting involved with like this whole thing. And then like Kyle MacLachlan's plot, like the titular clock, uh, is meant to like unmake the world and so they can do the world again better the second time. Like there's a sort of like similar like penchant for like this unimaginable horror, like the thing that you would want to do would be to undo it. Like that's like the strongest, like most natural urge. Uh, and like there's a sort of like impossibility that it can be undone in real life. Uh, and in this movie, it's kind of interesting because like there's a, like it it's portrayed as like genocidal to want to undo like the world because he doesn't want to remake the world with humans in it um which is kind of weird and and fucked up but uh there's there's something it just with the sort of superhero movie-ish visual quality there's something very kind of like thanos or like some of the like dc movies it's like a, a kind of super villain element well it also to it. has this whole element of like being this to a degree 50s period piece but it's and i i saw this reading on letterbox as well where it's like it's this 1950s period piece movie but you're also you're not reckoning with anything that would actually be going on in like 1950s america like they have a whole conversation about a water fountain at an at a school and it's not the conversation you would have been having in the 50s it's it's that there's no like soda in it or whatever and they say and like there, there's like a scene where the kids are lined up just kind of yelling like water fountain water and it's it's just kind of this weird it's it's almost like this like whole like the whole thing's like this kind of alternate reality type situation and it's Does an, it even it's like take place it's in michigan like explicitly and it's an okay. integrated high school um but it's like which I guess wouldn't have been unnatural like unusual in the 50s in Michigan maybe but even so it feels it's weird it, it it's it, like it's not like they have to have a whole thing to like but it's just it is it's like it's it's just a very unacknowledged like yeah this is a messy period in American it's, history it's a little uh, like Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull <laughs> in some ways I don't know but no if you kind of look at it like through this lens of like like this is like this is the alternate reality that they're in but even though you kind of have like this this ideal state where like you're not having the the kind of civil unrest of the 50s and 60s um but you still have the holocaust that has happened and like you have to and you're trying it's like there's never to me it's it's like there's never going to be this reality where everything is just going to be perfectly laid out like even though you have you know more perfect integration in this reality that that we're living in in this movie you still have the holocaust that happened so so it's just kind of like we just have to clear everything out you know it's this constant like fighting with with there's always a, a bit of evil somewhere there's always a there's always a tiktok that's right there's always <laughs> that's a movie thanks everybody yeah but no it's i think it's um I think that kind of adds to almost like the unnerving quality of it. Like it, it is it's just kind of this like um, unbalanced um, state to it that makes it, uh, I don't know if it necessarily adds to it, but it makes it interesting. It makes it much more interesting than like any, than a lot of other equivalent movies that are coming out around this time. 
Yeah, in fact, um, speaking of uh, Thanos 2018, isn't that the year of the snap? Like the the uh, Thanos. It, it, that that is kind of like a weird like comparison because this is a very. I remember when I saw. Um, can't remember the name of the movie. Infin- yeah, Infinity War. Uh, I remember when I saw Infinity War, I was like left thinking like, this is a movie that's so full of like kooky elements, but they're not allowed to be kooky, you know? Like uh, all the superheroes have these really bizarre powers because they're like kind of, you know, space gods and like radioactive people and all that sort of stuff. But they all do the same thing, which is like punch and then like shoot energy from their fists. Um, and it is kind of interesting to compare it to this movie in which like, it's not like an amazing movie and like as we talked about the effects aren't amazing but there is still like a vivaciousness and interesting like uh quality about it that like is kind of in reference like in 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 conversation with the marvel movies in a way like i mean like the the snap versus like the un undoing the world sort of thing but also just like I don't know, like, there's zapping magic in this movie, too, but then there's, like, interesting permutations on that. Or even just, like, the the freaking creatures, like the cat that, like, just farts leaves. Um, like, the hedge the hedgerow cat. Um, or, like, the, the pumpkins, like, are... Like, the pumpkins are interesting because they're, like, CGI, but they vomit, like, practical goo, I think, on the characters. Um, and, I mean, it's not, like, amazing. It's not, like, you know... You mentioned Sam Raimi, and it, you know I can imagine like the classic Sam Raimi movies have this kind of chaotic, like you know, smorgasbord of creatures that is much more interesting. But at the same time, like compared to like what a kind of studio like you know middle school audience movie, like it does have some signs of life that are abnormal. Yeah, I don't. You know, it's it's. I I enjoyed it well enough. It's not great. Um... It's still, you know, it still has its holes, but like I do, I do appreciate that like Eli Roth's like kind of going for it, and it doesn't all work, but he did go for it, you know. Um, and like that's, and honestly, at this point, it's kind of like the thing that people talk about with a lot of movies that there's just so there's not many people going for it, in, in especially like kind of main like this is a in theaters mainstream like uh mass-produced movie through universal and amblin and it's like being weird and strange and not necessarily like trying to meet its audience it's just kind of going i'm this way and you can deal with it um and that's not necessarily what you see in theaters you know a lot of it's it's trying to kind of give give people the experience that they're expected when they when they're what they're, what they're expecting when they go in the in the door well, I think like there's elements of this movie that are kind of like capitulating to audience expectations and they're the most like tedious elements of the movie. Like one of the reviews mentioned like how goofy Jack Black is and like it's Jack Black so he's, of course he's going to be goofy and I don't have a problem with that. But like some of the dialogue that he is doing is like very, feels very like 2010s family blockbuster yeah. kind of like uh, dialogue and uh that's gotta hurt yeah right right exactly like it's it's like constantly stuff like that and like i that really took me out of the movie in a way like Kate blanchett is allowed to be kind of like steely and and cold and she kind of like pulls that off but jack she understood the assignment a little bit i think jack black understood the assignment too because like that's what he's doing but i just don't like the assignment 
Um, yeah, he does kind of, I mean, as much as I love him, he does have a, sometimes one note that he... Yeah, I mean, I like Jack Black. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Jack Black, but he's like a little much here. And he's not a little much because he's Jack Black. He's a little bit much because of the material that he's been given. Like, um, I don't know. Like, I like Jack Black as like the kooky, like merlin uncle type guy like that's like a fun role it's just like some of the specific things like another thing like i mean this is kind of like just funny uh but like there's a part in the movie where jack black's like i gotta pee and he says that for like no apparent reason except like it's kind of like a laugh line and later in the uh later in the scene he like turns to a baby and pees and like the act of him turning into a baby is very funny and weird but him peeing is like i don't know like to me that feels like again like can we address the surrealness of when Jack Black turns into a baby and and keeps his head the but is on a is the, on a newborn baby's body? The part I couldn't look away from was the neck because the neck yeah, was like it was it had to connect to the baby's body. It was it was out there. So it's like somewhere you can like probably go to an auction of Hollywood props and buy that. I would do that too. <laughs> that would be insane. It's like how I, I feel like I've seen like a listing for like uh, the naked body of Sylvester Stallone and Demolition Man like in the cryogenic <laughs> freezing and I feel like it would be one of those really just like bizarre things. Yeah. I think it's interesting to compare this movie to The Witches. Um, I, we compared this in I think like very briefly to The Monsters because that's like you know Rob zombie doing a kids movie but i think the witches is an interesting comparison because that's um nicholas rogue doing a kids movie and i think like the witches is a more interesting movie than this movie but i think the effects are kind of the same in the sense of when i watch the witches and maybe y'all feel different but when i watch the witches i can see the nicholas rogue weirdness in it but i'm also a little bit like there's elements of the movie that are kind of tedious and boring to me in the witches because of the way that it has to like just kind of capitulate to a certain um like expectations of i don't know the witch is a weird movie but it does kind of have a because of not just it being rolled doll but because of the kind of like era of movie it's coming out and it's got like a kind of like like uh it feels like a family movie from the 1980s or 90s in some degree like the kid like the kid you know, I think the kids are all irritating in these movies, and that's the it's, problem. He, he, I was going to say, the kid's <laughs> fucking annoying in, in The Witches, so. In if the you witches, have an annoying-ass kid. Annoying in a, a clock, House of the Clock in its Walls, like, maybe it's that. Like, maybe, like, the, maybe it's that, like, having the young, like, audience surrogate kids. He just, he has, like, such a, like, a like you just want to slap the shit out of him when he cries. You know what this movie also kind of reminded me of in terms of, like, kind of annoying kids? Hugo. This scene felt like Eli Roth's Hugo. Fucking Asa Butterfield or whatever his name is. Little Ender's Game over here. Okay, buddy. What is what is he up to now? I have no idea. I'll 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 I'll, I'll look for you, but Asa Butterfield. Oh, he's in that he's in that sex education show. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. Also, you know. Connecting back to the whole thing about the Holocaust was The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, which is a reprehensible movie that we should oh arrest God. him for. Oh, wow. Also, Ender's f- Game is about Hitler, kind of, so. Um, the house with a clock in its walls, the kid is from uh, Daddy's Home. <laughs> <laughs> and Daddy's Home, oh, wow. too. Oh, they brought him back. 
Well, Daddy's not home anymore because he died in the car crash. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> He's also in the movie Team Marco. What is Finding Ohana? He... I don't know what any of these the first, are. The first fun mom the... dinner? Finding Ohana. <laughs> the st- Mother's Day. That's, uh, that's one of those All of ones. these movies have parents in the titles. <laughs> Daddy's Home, Mother's Day, Fun Mom Dinner, Daddy's Home 2. Wait. Finding Ohana. Ohana means family. <laughs> family means nobody gets left behind <laughs> or forgotten. Jeez. <laughs> oh this kid's got a type. Um, no, he's terrible. He was bad. The kid, and, yeah. then, and, then, and then the, then the broken arm kid, also awful. The wrong kid died. <laughs> yeah, the wrong kid died. But no, the, the arm kid is awful. He he sounds like um, he's like he's like had like what three antidepressants and he was acting. Oh my god, he's a kid from mid nineties. No way. That's what he, he is, was. Yeah. And uh, killing of a sacred deer. And he's in the God of War. <laughs> he's in Wayne in that game too. <laughs> Three of the games. <laughs> wow. That would suck to just like your job is to be an annoying child actor. I feel like that's like at least fifty percent of the child actor roles. <laughs> Oh yeah, definitely, uh, definitely most of them. Like the kid Spritel from Speed Racer, that kid. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess the moral of the story is that like, and we kind of invite these sorts of movies with our series horror for kids, but it's conceptually interesting to have like an adult film, not adult film, <laughs> like a like an adult director. Um, have an adult. It is director. interesting to have an adult with a cock in its walls. <laughs> House with a cock and ball. <laughs> I bet Jack Black's character would like that. Yeah, he's doing something. <laughs> but anyway, like, I don't know. Like, I, I guess you brought up Hugo, and I think that's maybe like one of the better case scenarios of these. But like, I don't know that I've seen like the movie where the like serious adult director directs like a kids movie. I'm trying to think of the one where that it's like, wow, that's really like an indispensable part of this director's like oeuvre, you know? Um, um, I haven't seen it, but I know some people say that Fritz Lang's Moonfleet is like secretly his best, the like, his like kind of kids pirate movie. Um, but that's, sort of, you know, going way back. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe yeah, like Terry Gilliam with Time Bandits. People really like Time Bandits. Um, Kind of all his movies are kids. Yeah, movies. some of his movies are just R-rated time. And that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Too. Like Spielberg, you know, obviously has like very adult movies, but I also feel like he he's not like it's not like he did one, you know, juvenile movie, the BFG. Well, he's known he's known for like you know kind of having kids, you know, like ET and Jurassic Park and. Uh, Raiders and I mean like those movies are not are not adult like that's what he's known for and then he started making you know other stuff then he was like let me just drop Schindler's List and Jurassic Park it's got a kind of Robert Zemeckis vibe yeah I don't know I maybe (laughs) well he had Pinocchio (laughs) taking a shit in the new movie so he's he's got to go speaking of witches he did that (laughs) think anybody saw he did yeah um any any final thoughts on house with a clock on its walls i think it's worth checking out 
Yeah, if, I think if uh, if it came out in 2009, it would have starred Freddie Highmore. That's my <laughs> Are you talking about what is what what the hell was that show? He August was in? Rush. Oh my god. No, no, no. What's the? Is it the Good Doctor? Yeah, the Good. good oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Good Doctor. Fucking Finding Neverland or whatever. Arthur and the Invisibles, the Spiderwick Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> this does also have a series of unfortunate events kind of vibe. I was I didn't realize that the I don't think I read the book. I didn't realize that the art was by Edward Gorey, though, who I was a big fan of when I was a kid. Um, I remember I think I learned like about his work th- uh, from the masterpiece mystery PBS like opening credits. And I just really like that kind of like macabre, morbid, whimsical type stuff uh, when I was like early teens. Um, and I don't know where I was going with that. I have a final. Um, yeah. Yeah, series of. Oh, series of unfortunate it events. It's got that. I have a final bit, thought, kind of which is too, that but, uh, like we're in a weird phase of like cinema and cinephilia at the moment in which like there are like so few movies or there are fewer movies released and this was true in 2018 but especially true now because of covid and stuff but uh there are fewer movies released and also you have this kind of like overriding like as like studio aesthetic that is kind of like overbearing and i think that we've like adopted like a sliding scale for what we consider interesting like you mentioned this movie being people love the most mid you shit. mentioned like this movie being released in 2009 and i think if this movie were released in 2009 it would be unremarkable like completely unremarkable well, it would probably be one of those things like The Mummy or like uh, The Mask of Zorro or like the first parts of the Caribbean where people are like, oh, you know, actually looking back on it, like that was pretty good. You know, that was some competent filmmaking. Like that's what people would say about The House of the Clock and as well. It's like it, this is some competent filmmaking. Like by the standards of today, this is better than most I will things, go to bat know? for the Pirates movies. But like I think a lot of those other movies like, yeah, like there's like a. Like, if this weren't directed by Eli Roth, I would never watch this movie. And even it with it being directed by Eli Roth, like, I had to remi- I constantly remind myself, like, I'm interested in this because it's an Eli Roth movie, and therefore I was looking for those weird, like, little, like, Holocaust oh, things. But had I not had that context, and if I were just, like, 19, seeing this with, like, my little brother in 2009, um, like, I would have forgotten about this movie. And I think... I don't know. It's like this interesting thing in which, like, I don't know. Every every era like looks back to previous eras and looks at like kinds of media that don't get made very much anymore and has a kind of nostalgia for them. And but like cinephilia right now is in like a like overdrive of that. And like that's not all bad. Like it's cool that we can like just appreciate like mid rom coms for what they are rather than like you know hating their kind of ubiquity in the two thousands. Like I mean, there's like there's value in like appreciating things that aren't like, you know, like these like visionary masterpieces or whatever, but it is kind of weird that I don't know, like I, this is not like a super, I didn't feel like this was a super engaging movie. It's like fine, but like it feels more interesting than it should be because we don't get movies with even this like little smidge of personality very much anymore. Uh, all right. All right, I'm gonna put a I'm gonna put a stake in this one. <laughs> um, 
And I'll wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at, at cinematary, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we uh, list all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Um, if you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash cinematary. Whether it's one, five, or whatever, you can just, you know, just if you feel like shouting out the show. Um, Thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsome, Corey Willingham, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, Titus Arthur, and Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for your patronage. Next week, we're going to be concluding our Horror for Kids series with this year's Wendell and Wild, which comes out on Friday. So uh, go give it a watch before we do the episode. Um, Until then, Wendell and we're getting wild. Wild and out. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.